The sun was not yet up as she sighted the prince's castle and climbed the magnificent marble steps. The moon was shining wonderfully clear. The little mermaid drank the sharp, burning potion, and it was as if a two-edged sword pierced through her delicate body. She fainted and lay as though dead. Then the sun, streaming over the sea, woke her up, and she felt a sharp pain. But there in front of her stood the handsome young prince. He stared at her with his coal-black eyes so that she cast down her own and saw that her fish's tail had gone and she had the sweetest little white legs that any young girl could wish for. But she was quite naked, and so she wrapped herself in her long, flowing hair. The prince asked who she was, and how she had come there, and she could only look back at him so gently, and yet so sadly, out of her deep blue eyes, for, of course, she couldn't speak. Then he took her by the hand and led her into the castle. Every step she took, as the witch had foretold, was as though she were treading on sharp knives and pricking gimlets. But she gladly put up with that. By the side of the prince she went along as lightly as a bubble, and he and all of them marveled at the charm of her graceful movements. Costly dresses were given her of silk and muslin. She was the most beautiful in all the castle. But she was dumb. She could neither sing nor speak. Lovely slave girls in gold and silk came out and danced before the prince and his royal parents. One of them sang more beautifully than all the rest, and the prince clapped his hands and smiled at her. This saddened the little mermaid, for she knew that she herself had sung far more beautifully. And she thought, Oh, if only he knew that I gave my voice away forever in order to be with him. Next, the slave girls danced a graceful gliding dance to the most delightful music, and then the little mermaid raised her pretty white arms, lingered on the tips of her toes, and then glided across the floor, dancing as no one had danced before. She looked more and more lovely with every movement, and her eyes spoke more deeply to the heart than the slave girls singing. Everyone was enchanted, and especially the prince, who called her his little foundling. She went on dancing, although every time her foot touched the ground it felt as though she were treading on sharp knives. The prince said that she must never leave him, and she was allowed to sleep on a velvet cushion outside his door. He had boys' clothes made for her so that she could go riding with him on horseback. They rode through the sweet-smelling woods where the green boughs grazed her shoulders, and the little birds sang among the cool foliage. She went climbing with the prince, up high mountains, and although her delicate feet bled so that others could see it, she only laughed and went on and on with him, until they could see the clouds sailing below them like a flock of birds migrating to other lands. Back at the prince's castle, when at night the others were asleep, she would go out onto the broad marble steps and cool her tingling feet in the cold seawater. And then she would think of those down there in the depths of the sea. One night, her sisters rose up, arm in arm, singing so mournfully as they swam on the water. She made signs to them, and they recognized her, and told her how unhappy she had made them all. After that, they used to visit her every night. And once, in the far distance, she saw her old grandmother, who hadn't been above the water for many years, and also the sea king wearing his crown. They both stretched out their hands towards her, but they didn't venture in so near to the shore as the five sisters. 
day by day she became dearer to the prince. He loved her as one loves a dear, good child, but he didn't dream of making her his queen. And yet she had to become his wife, or else she would never win an immortal soul, but on his wedding morning would be turned to foam on the sea. Do you like me best of all? The little mermaid's eyes seemed to say when he took her in his arms and kissed her lovely brow. Yes, said the prince. You are the dearest of all, because you have the kindest heart. You are the most devoted to me, and you remind me of a young girl I once saw, but shall probably never see again. I was sailing in a ship that wrecked. The waves drove me ashore near a sacred temple where a number of young girls were serving. The youngest, who found me on the beach and saved my life, I only saw her twice. She was the only one I could ever love in this world. But you are so like her that you almost take the place of her image in my heart. She belongs to the holy temple, so that fortune has been kind in sending you to me. We will never part. Ah, uh, little does he know that it was I who saved his life, thought the mermaid, that I carried him across the sea to the temple in the wood, that I waited in the foam and watched if anyone would come. I saw the pretty girl he loves better than me, and the mermaid sighed deeply, for she didn't know how to cry. The girl belongs to the sacred temple, he says. She'll never come out into the world, and they'll never meet again. I am with him. I see him every day. I will take care of him, love him, give up my life for him. But now the prince was getting married, they said. Married to the pretty daughter of the neighboring king and that was why he was fitting out such a splendid ship. The prince was going off to take a look at his neighbor's kingdom. That was how they put it, meaning that it was really to take a look at his neighbor's daughter. A large suite was to go with him, but the little mermaid shook her head and laughed. She knew the prince's thoughts far better than all the others. I shall have to go, he said to her. I shall have to visit the pretty princess, as my parents are so insistent. But force me to bring her back here as my wife? That they will never do. I can't love her. She's not like the beautiful girl in the temple, as you are. If I ever had to find a bride, I would rather have you, my dear mute foundling with the speaking eyes. And he kissed her red mouth, played with her long hair, and laid his head against her heart, so that it dreamed of human happiness and an immortal soul. You've no fear of the sea, have you, my dumb child? He asked as they stood on board the splendid ship that was to take him to the neighboring kingdom. And he told her of stormy gales and dead calms, of strange fishes at the bottom of the ocean, and all that the diver had seen there. She smiled at his tales, for she knew better than anyone else about the bottom of the sea. At night, when there was an unclouded moon, and all were asleep but the helmsman at his wheel, she sat by the ship's rail and stared down through the clear water. And she seemed to see her father's palace, with her old grandmother standing on top of it in her silver crown, and gazing up through the swift current at the keel of the vessel. Then her sisters came up on the water, and looked at her with eyes full of sorrow, wringing their white hands. She beckoned to them and smiled, and would have liked to tell them that all was going well, and happily with her. But the cabin boy came up at that moment and the sisters dived down so that the boy felt satisfied that the white something he had seen was foam on the water. Next morning, the ship sailed into the harbor of the neighboring king's magnificent capital. The church bells all rang out, and trumpets were blown from tall battlements, 
while the soldiers saluted with gleaming bayonets and flying colors. Every day there was a fete. Balls and parties were given, one after another, but nothing had yet been seen of the princess. It was said that she was being educated abroad in a sacred temple, where she had lessons in all the royal virtues. At last, she arrived. The little mermaid was eager for a glimpse of her beauty, and she had to admit that she had never seen anyone more charming to look at. Her complexion was so clear and delicate, and behind the long, dark lashes smiled a pair of trusting, deep blue eyes. "'It's you,' cried the prince. "'You who rescued me when I was lying half-dead on the shore.' And he clasped his blushing bride in his arms. "'Oh, I am too, too happy,' he said to the little mermaid. "'My dearest wish, more than I ever dared to hope for, has been granted me. "'My happiness will give you pleasure, because you're fonder of me than any of the others.' Then the little mermaid kissed his hand, and already she felt as if her heart was breaking. The morrow of his wedding would mean death to her and change her to foam on the sea. All the church bells were ringing as the heralds rode round the streets to proclaim the betrothal. On every altar sweet oil was burning in rich lamps of silver. The priests swung their censers, and bride and bridegroom joined hands and received the blessing of the bishop. Dressed in silk and gold, the little mermaid stood holding the bride's train but her ears never heard the festive music. Her eyes never saw the holy rites. She was thinking of her last night on earth, of all she had lost in this world. That same evening, bride and bridegroom went on board the ship. The cannon thundered, the flags were all flying, and amidships they had put up a royal tent of gold and purple, strewn with luxurious cushions. Here, the wedded couple were to sleep that calm, cool night, the sails filled the breeze, and the ship glided lightly and smoothly over the clear water. As darkness fell, colored lanterns were lit, and the crew danced merrily on deck. The little mermaid could not help thinking of the first time she came up out of the sea and gazed on just such a scene of joy and splendor. And now she joined in the dance, swerving and swooping as lightly as a swallow that avoids pursuit and shouts of admiration greeted her on every side. Never had she danced so brilliantly. It was as if sharp knives were wounding her delicate feet, but she never felt it. More painful was the wound in her heart. She knew that this was the last evening she would see the prince for whom she had turned her back on her own kindred and home, given up her beautiful voice, and every day suffered hours of agony without his suspecting a thing. This was the last night she would breathe the same air as he, gaze on the deep sea and the star-blue sky. An endless night, without thoughts, without dreams, awaited her who had no soul and could never win one. All was joy and merriment on board, until long past midnight. She laughed and danced with the thought of death in her heart. The prince kissed his lovely bride, and she toyed with his dark hair and arm in arm, they went to rest in the magnificent tent. The ship was now hushed and still. Only the helmsman was there at his wheel, and the little mermaid leaned with her white arms on the rail and looked eastward for a sign of the pink dawn. The first ray of sun, she knew, would kill her. Suddenly, she saw her sisters rising out of the sea. They were pale, like her. No more was their beautiful long hair fluttering in the wind. It had been cut off. 
We have given it to the witch, so that she might help us to save you from dying when tonight is over. She has given us a knife. Look, here it is. Do you see how sharp it is? Before sunrise, you must stab it into the prince's heart. Then, when his warm blood splashes over your feet, they will grow together into a fish's tail, and you will become a mermaid once more. You will be able to come down to us in the water and live out your three hundred years before being changed into the dead salt foam of the sea. Make haste. Either he or you must die before the sun rises. Our old grandmother has been sorrowing till her white hair has fallen away, as ours fell before the witch's scissors. Kill the prince and come back to us. But make haste. Look at that red gleam in the sky. In a few minutes, the sun will rise, and then you must die. And with a strange, deep sigh, they sank beneath the waves. The little mermaid drew aside the purple curtain of the tent, and she saw the lovely bride sleeping with her head on the prince's breast. She stopped and kissed his handsome brow, looked at the sky where the pink dawn glowed brighter and brighter, looked at the sharp knife in her hand, and again fixed her eyes on the prince, who murmured in his dreams the name of his bride. She alone was in his thoughts. The knife quivered in the mermaid's hand, but then she flung it far out into the waves. They glimmered red where it fell, and what looked like drops of blood came oozing out of the water. With a last glance at the prince, from eyes half-dimmed in death, she hurled herself from the ship into the sea and felt her body dissolving into foam. And now the sun came rising from the sea. Its rays fell gentle and warm on the death-chilled foam, and the little mermaid had no feeling of death. She saw the bright sun, and hovering above her, hundreds of lovely creatures. She could see right through them, see the white sails of the ship and the pink clouds in the sky, and their voice was the voice of melody yet so spiritual that no human ear could hear it, just as no earthly eye could see them. They had no wings, but their own lightness bore them up as they floated through the air. The little mermaid saw that she had a body like theirs, raising itself freer and freer from the foam. To whom am I coming? she asked, and her voice sounded like that of the other beings, more spiritual than any earthly music can record. To the daughters of the air, answered the others. A mermaid has no immortal soul, and can never have one unless she wins the love of a mortal. Eternity, for her, depends on a power outside her. Neither have the daughters of the air an everlasting soul, but by good deeds they can shape one for themselves. We shall fly to the hot countries where the stifling air of pestilence means death to mankind. We shall bring them cool breezes. We shall scatter the fragrance of flowers through the air and send them comfort and healing. When for three hundred years we have striven to do the good we can, then we shall win an immortal soul and have a share in mankind's eternal happiness. You, poor little mermaid, have striven for that wish with all your heart. You have suffered and endured and have raised yourself into the world of the spirits of the air. Now. By three hundred years of good deeds, you too can shape for yourself an immortal soul. And the little mermaid raised her crystal arms toward God's son, and for the first time, she knew the feeling of tears. On board the ship, there was bustle and life once more. She saw the prince with his pretty bride looking about for her. Sorrowfully, they stared at the heaving foam, as if they knew she had thrown herself into the waves. 
Unseen, she kissed the forehead of the bride, gave a smile to the prince, and then, with the other children of the air, she climbed to a rose-red cloud that was sailing to the sky. So, we shall float for three hundred years, till at last we come into the heavenly kingdom. And we may reach it sooner, whispered one. Unseen, we float into human homes where there are children, and for every day we find a good child who makes father and mother happy and earns their love. God shortens our time of trial. The child never knows when we fly through the room, and if that makes us smile with joy, then a year is taken away from the three hundred. But if we see a child who is naughty or spiteful, then we have to weep tears of sorrow, and every tear adds one more day to our time of trial. Maria Tatar calls Hans's work Cults of Suffering. You may be more familiar with his famous tale, The Little Match Girl, than this version of The Little Mermaid. However, the cult of suffering reference is evident in both stories. Life in the 1800s was not particularly pleasant for most people, and the promise of a heavenly kingdom was extremely appealing. Suffer and pray now to be granted freedom and happiness later. Rules, sacrifice, and asceticism often represent the conviction that comes with belief. Hans was a very pious man. He was also queer. Letters to his lover, Edvard Collin, are filled with passion and longing. They were close friends from a young age, though Edvard could only offer him friendship. Hans penned The Little Mermaid after Edvard married a woman. With this in mind, the similarities between Hans and The Little Mermaid become clearer. A hidden, unknown world deep beneath the sea where a mermaid falls in love with a human prince. Even after saving the prince's life and sacrificing her voice, comfort, and family, she is still rejected. In her place, a lovely religious girl who spent time in a holy temple weds the prince. Religious devotion has been paralleled with asceticism throughout history, from fasting and abstinence to flagellation and castration. This style of worship was Hans's reality in a world where he had to repress his true desires for men. And this style of devotion is necessary for our heroine, the Little Mermaid, to fully repent for her blasphemous mermaid birth and to solidify an eternal soul. The Little Mermaid's resolve even gets tested when her sisters offer her a way out, yet she resists. Her devotion is unwavering until the very end. Pious and ascetic, just like a good Christian child should be. So, the next time you hear some small-minded racist angry about the fact that the Little Mermaid in the live adaptation is black, please inform them that the foundation of this tale was inspired by unrequited queer love. Fairy tales reflect our humanity, and since mermaids don't technically exist, they can be whatever color anyone wants them to be. Thanks for listening to my podcast. I created Telling Tales to really dive into one of my true loves of life, fairy tales. If you love them too, then please like, 
subscribe, and share this podcast. You can stay up to date by following me on Instagram at Telling Tales. Have a magical day.